that they've loved, all that they've fought for, all that they've stood for, will now be put to the test. Star Trek Three: The Search for Spock. The word, sir? The word? Is no. I am therefore going anyway. You do this, you'll never sit in the captain's chair again. Engage auto systems. Clear all moorings. Cleared, sir. One quarter impulse power. Someone is stealing the Enterprise. Warp speed. Cling Alberta Bracer. She's arming torpedoes. Shields up. The shield's not responsive. Fuck! We're a sitting duck. Join us on this, the final voyage of the Starship Enterprise. Star Trek III, The Search for Spock. The adventure continues. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to The Bloody Pit. I am joined once again by Mark Maddox. Mark, how are you doing? <laughs> ah, same as always. <laughs> <laughs> So I'm doing we, are here, good. we are here to continue our ongoing task of going through the first six Star Trek movies. Tonight, we discuss Star Trek 3, 1984's entry in the series. Um, you and I have already talked. We talked about it a little bit uh, at the end of the episode we did on Trek 2. That mm-hmm. we both do like this film, although it is uh, although it is the uh, the one even numbered film of the first six that has the most love. Uh, there, you know, people do have a tendency to like three more than in general they like one and five. Um, but I honestly, I will state right up front that I, I generally do love it to death, and I know I've probably over the course of my life watched it far too many times. Uh, I assume the same is true of you. Um, this one is, I, I, I do like it. I do not like it as much as one, uh, but I don't like hardly any of the other ones as much as one, because to me, that's the big scope epic just okay. to make you feel like it. But having said that, we're kind of, I put them in two, two, two categories. Well, maybe three, if you take five, that one's in its own category, but <laughs> Star Trek one is the, Hey, here's what would happen if Star Trek was actually as gigantic as we could make it look. Then the other ones are, you know, uh, two, three, four, and six are this, Hey, what's happened if we get back to more of a TV feel, but with a really nice budget, mm-hmm. but that Star Trek pep, that Star Trek drama. And I'd say out of those four, uh, uh, because I'm I'm actually afraid of us going to number five because I think you and I are going to sink our fangs. It's going to be like <laughs> watching two pit bulls, uh, you know, turn a chihuahua into a wishbone on that. It's going to be ugly. I got but, news for you. I think that there are people out there who cannot wait for us to get to Star Trek Five. Yeah, I'm actually sort of like, but the problem is, I have to, I have to try to watch it, and every time I start to try to watch it, I, I gotta, I, I start throwing up in my mouth. But we'll, <laughs> let's go back to. But I would say almost in order of the four regular budgeted films, I would say this is the lowest on the totem pole of the liked movies does that make any sense oh i i agree Uh, with you i agree with you it's true it's liked uh, some people don't like it that much but most of the people like it's got good stuff in it Mm -hmm. and i do like it uh it does have warts it does have flaws uh there's some things about it and i'll i'll get to it but i still think that it's um there's also some incredibly hard-hitting moments that almost dwarf almost anything in any of the other films 
to yeah. me. So, uh, yeah. So, uh, and I did go back and see this one. Oddly enough, I saw it more than most of the other Star Trek films uh, at the theater. I think I saw this one seven times, and I don't ultimately know why. I saw it more than, like, let's say, Wrath of Khan or Star Trek Four. Or, or Star Trek Six. I mean, Star Trek Six. I, I just moved into my own house and was moving in and stuff. So I actually had to run run away from moving into my first house, uh, getting some stuff packed, and then ran to the theater to watch it real quick on the Saturday that it uh, the weekend that it opened. Hmm. And okay. I don't know if I ever saw it again, but I've seen it a hell of a lot more on laser disc, DVD, Blu-ray, 4K, Zibagalagaluga, future. Direct projection into your brain. Future, future projection, you know. But anyway, so, um, but, okay, so you want to go ahead and get the ball rolling on the film? Put the film in the projector? Certainly. Um, Let's talk a little bit about the fact that this is the middle point of what turned out to be a trilogy story. Uh, this is not planned, but this is by the time they made this one, I think that they probably had a good a good sense of the fact that they were definitely going to make another one after this because mm-hmm. two was such a success mm-hmm. that uh, they they probably had a good sense that they were going to do be able to do at least one more past this. And it naturally continues on. Uh, this, the, you know, three follows two. You know, you know, hard on the heels of the story of, of of it, and of course, four follows three. And so, what we have here is a middle chapter. And in general, middle chapters are not well thought of when you think about the, the both cinema, you know, trilogies in novel form, anything like that. Generally, the weakest considered chapter will be the middle chapter. Uh, it's usually a bridge from the the opening and the, the world building and the you know the setting of everything in place and the excitement of, of what's new. And then you have the third chapter, the wrap up where everything comes to a head and it's all this big huge thing that sets everything back in place. So the middle chapter, which is what the search for Spock is, is uh, generally almost crippled from the outset if you can make a good one if you can make a good middle chapter you've probably done a a more difficult thing than you really should have been asked to do so what we have here is the middle chapter of what turns out to be a trilogy uh and um this is you know that as i said not planned but it's an effective one in the world of uh, science fiction or science fantasy. Uh, it's don't get me wrong. It, as far as trilogies go, it's it's no Empire Strikes Back, but it is still pretty damn good, and it mm-hmm. certainly it certainly gets the job done in a very effective way. Um, mm-hmm. This has a number of things in it that uh, when I went back to watch this one. I had forgotten about, which is really strange considering the number of times I saw this film. I know I saw it at least twice in the theater, and I know that on video I saw it roughly a hundred trillion times uh, because I owned the first three films on VHS tape when I was Mm -hmm. in high school. And I would there would be, you know, weeks where I would watch each of them at least once that week. And so, yeah, so there would be just a, a constant recycling of those and the joys of these of this film i mean it, it it's not like i've forgotten anything but what i'd forgotten was the order in which things happen the the emotional effect that the various sequences have the uh the, the i'd forgotten a little bit of the humor i'd forgotten a little bit of uh 
some of the some of the interesting dialogue, some of the clunky dialogue I'd forgotten as well. Mm-hmm. But the joys of this movie, while definitely uh, a notch or two beneath Wrath of Khan, it's a strong film, and I was I was very pleasantly surprised to go back to it. It's not like I thought going back to it that I would I would suddenly find that I didn't like it. But it was nice to have my mem- my memories play out essentially the way I had them kind of encased in amber in my head. Uh-huh. Well, um, first off, you know, our fans always like the fact that you and I go at each other and stuff like that. So um, I don't want to disappoint them. So wrong. <laughs> okay. Well, what first off, everything I agreed with everything you said, but I do not look at this as a trilogy. Star Trek six is still is the wrap up of a four part story where they really? have to deal with Kirk's racism from the death of his son in this film. I mean, oh, well, that's, that's the whole point. Well, I mean, well, it's a, it's that a, would a, be a what, that, would be, that would be a thematic t- uh, uh, a thread. I will grant you. But, but Star Trek: The Motion Picture and Star Trek Five have nothing to do with that story arc. But Star Trek Six clearly does because the Klingons were a pain in Kirk's ass in some of these films, mm-hmm. and finally, it really gets wrapped up where he gets to put his demons away. I don't want to jump on the Star Trek Six yet. But yeah, I mean, I get what you're saying. Well, the, the reason it's the like reason a trilogy, that, well, but, it, but it, yeah, it, he it gets is. out of trouble. He gets out of trouble. Well, it's it's, it's not Trek even that. Four. It's not even that. The way the, the way the way that I'm referring to this as a trilogy, and I think this is the way that most people would refer to it as that as well, would be that it is not until the end of the fourth film mm-hmm. that everyone is set back in place. Everyone, in, in other words, there's an arc. That begins with two and ends in ends with four, with our heroes going on a journey that takes them into outlaw territory in this film right. particularly, and they are not back in the good graces of Starfleet, and they are not back you know in the places where essentially those characters really belong until the end of the fourth film. I agree and I disagree because once again we're the, the last film that you know you've got the war film and then the guy comes home and then there's the final film where you deal with the guy's PTSD or his racism or whatever you want to call it. Mm -hmm. It is. And it isn't, I get what you're saying, but I think you, you do understand what I'm saying, right? You can call it three or you can call it four. It's not much of a tipping point. But if you want to link the six to these, to, to, to the trilogy of two, three and four, I don't have a problem with that simply because six really is kind of the perfect sequel to that trilogy. It is that thing where you had Nicholas Meyer come back. What's it called if it's for a, what's yeah. it, a quad, quadrology? What is uh, it? Oh, uh, a tetralogy. Really? Four is tetralogy? Tetra, yeah. Oh, do, okay. yeah. The, believe me, they, they tried to turn quadrilogy into something, but that's just bullshit. I'm sorry, it's tetralogy. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Isaac Newton. I don't know what the fuck. No, but no. Okay, I, I, okay, cool. That's fine. I, I just I've never had to use the term, but now we've had to because of Star Trek. Exactly. So, all right. So, uh, we might want to talk about this film. Oh well, let, let's do that. Uh, okay. First of all, first <laughs> of all, are we talking about. Um, uh, we'll we'll use a, a basic plot synopsis. Uh, before we jump into that, I do love that originally when written, we weren't going to have Klingons in this story. They were going to be Romulans. Huh? Yeah, okay, yeah. I did that's not know the, that. that was the original idea. And uh, mm. Nimoy and a few other people 
came to Bennett and went, you know, it'd be a lot better if they were Klingons, right? Because we, you know, we've we've already got them established. We've already shown, you know, we've already updated the look of them at the beginning of the first film. So this would allow us to, you know, to kind of get another visual, you know, kind of another pull from uh, the first film to keep the, you know, kind of a visual. I won't say symmetry, but you know we've already done the work of re, you know, of revisioning the uh, the Klingons, and if we made the bad guys Klingons, this not only complicates things, it also puts us in the position of having essentially stronger villains and also villains that don't have some kind of ancient connection to Vulcans, mm-hmm. which right. which makes those lines being drawn between different different planets a little easier to discern, and right. so that's that's pretty cool to know. And um, so this is a, this is a film that has the that has a classic a classic setup of a, a, a villain uh, or a, a set of villains in that in the in Krug and his his uh, band of, of loonies on the on the uh, bird of prey that he commands. But even if we didn't have the Klingons in the story, there would be enough shit going on in this damn thing for the movie to have plenty happening. The Klingons just hideously compromise a lot of stuff that goes on and right. end up complicating things in a horrible, horrible way. Mm-hmm. So what we have here is Star Trek three uh, begins right at the right, right. Just honestly, apparently a few days, if not a week or two uh, after the end of Star Trek two with uh, the enterprise returning to earth. Yeah. Following the battle with Khan, the, the casualties of the fight include uh, of course, Spock, whose casket was launched into space and eventually landed on the planet uh, created by the Genesis device in the Mutara sector. Mm-hmm. Upon, arri- upon arrival at uh, the Earth space dock in orbit around the planet, uh, mm-hmm. Dr. McCoy begins to act strangely and is detained. They put him in, uh, they put him in uh, detention and they're a little concerned that his mental state has gone wonky, mainly because at one point he appears to be speaking with Spock's voice. Mm-hmm. And is very disoriented. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, the commander of Starfleet, Admiral Morrow, visits the Enterprise and informs the crew that the ship is to be decommissioned. They are instructed not to speak about the Genesis project or the Genesis device because the political fallout over what went down in the Matara sector is very, very big. There's a lot of uh, there's a lot of uh, dangerous talk going on, and it's not difficult to figure out exactly what those political problems would be if this federation held together by you know federation of lots of different planets lots of different cultures are suddenly now dealing with the fact that they have within their grasp the ability to make habitable planets that is a big deal and i'm sure that there are more than a few cultures within the 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 federation that might just want to slow things down a little bit to figure out just what this may mean and how this could be could be best be used because until it was actually until they actually set that thing off it was theoretical now it's actual they formed a planet out of a sec out of a gaseous anomaly in space this is very 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 big so David Marcus, Kirk's son and a key scientist in the Genesis in the Genesis devices development, and Lieutenant Savick uh, have been sent to investigate the Genesis planet from aboard the science vessel Grissom. Uh, discovering an unexpected life form on the surface, 
Marcus and Savick transport to the planet to investigate. Of course, they are worried at first that the only life form that should be there or could be there is Commander Spock's, or I'm sorry, Captain Spock's uh, body, and he should be dead. They're both a little surprised to have noticed, to have found that the, um, the, the tube that his body was shot to the planet uh, soft landed in the first place because in general those things should have it should have burned up in the atmosphere of the forming planet but it would appear that uh, amongst the odd things that are involved in uh, the Genesis wave creating a planet um, getting this little tube to soft land on the surface may have been one of them so mm-hmm, mm-hmm. um they find that the Genesis device has somehow resurrected Spock in the form of a child who is aging quickly. And although his mind is not present, Marcus admits that he uh, uh, thinks that um, the this aging process is being mirrored by the planet because they discover very quickly that although this world that they designed was supposed to have all of the various types of climates that you would find on uh, any Earth-type world, these different uh, these different types of climates are really, really close together, and they seem to be radically fluctuating and changing in ways that do not point to a healthy environment. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Right. Um, Marcus admits that he ha- that he used unstable protomatter in the development of the Genesis device. Because, as he puts it, it was the only way to solve certain problems. This is causing Spock's resurrected body to age rapidly, and it means that the planet will be destroyed within hours because it is unstable. Now, I'd like to take a stop here and point out that this, to me, although the film does not underline it, I was very happy to see that the novelization did take pains to underline this, plus the novelization just being actually very very good um mm-hmm. the the that's a good point there to show that david marcus really does kind of seem to be kirk's son uh got a problem can't seem to fix it well change the rules do something you know do something you know, color outside the lines to make it work um that really does feel a whole lot like exactly what kirk would have done in a similar situation right uh well meanwhile Captain Krug, a Klingon, he's the commander of a Klingon bird of prey. He intercepts information about Genesis. He is apparently, and this is this is an interesting sub uh, su- little little bitty subplot given to us in just a couple of scenes, where there was a uh, a Klingon um, spy of some sort who managed to get her hands on the uh, the instruct the instructional pieces of information about the Genesis device and the Genesis project. Mm-hmm. Steal it, and she has brought it out and hands it off to Krug. Of course, Krug uh, also has to kill her and destroy the ship that she came on because he uh, he's a Klingon after all, and we can't let these things uh, we can't let this information get somewhere that I don't control. And so, also perfectly, I think demonstrating just how ruthless Klingons generally are, and uh, even with the spy being willing to sacrifice her life to do the quote-unquote honorable thing. 
Mm-hmm. Now, once again, uh, a pretty a pretty a deft uh, addition to uh, the story of this particular female Klingon spy in the novelization was interesting. Uh, there's a the the backstory on her is that her family her her family had been uh, dishonored in recent years, and she went on this and she went on this particular uh, mission to. Uh, attempt to find a way to bring honor back to her family and so dying in this way is a way for her to do that and i think that that's a that once again another nice little addition to the novelization i should point out the novelization um for both two and three were written by uh vonda vonda mcintyre vonda mcintyre yeah and and i remember and her name yeah um somebody was posting something about her the other day i don't know if she's still with us or not god i hope anybody hearing this if she's still with us You know, don't get too upset. I just, she, she, I she's no longer with us. She passed. She passed away in 2019. Yeah, and and I remember she was kind of a big name when we were, you oh, know, yeah. with with the Star Trek books and everything. Mm-hmm. And uh, as a matter of fact, just the other day, I was uh, something somebody posted some of her best uh, uh, Trek Trek work mm-hmm. on Facebook, and Wrath of Khan was there. And I was I was just as you were getting ready to say just before you said her name, I was going to go up there and look and see who had written it. I, it was like I got got her name mixed up with Susan Sackett. But, um, okay. uh, but anyway, so yeah, I mean, um, the novelizations now, I don't know to what degree they, how much uh, help they get with the original, you know, shooting script or, you know, some of those ones like those original Star Trek James Blish novels. Yeah. Those things were a lot of times from the first draft. So some things were really different or early drafts, uh, with different names like, uh, Mantrap was called the Unreal McCoy. And things like that, and there's some of these that are that are that are a bit different from what, what finally got shot. So I don't know uh, whether they gave her some kind of a, a writer's bible or something to help her, you know, fill that in, or whether they just said, "Hey, look, why don't you go ahead and write some filler in there that might explain some of the stuff that makes it better as a novel?" And if we like it, well, I have no clue. Well, I got, but, I've got to tell you, I think that. The, the job she does specifically with Sh- with Search for Spock is astonishing. We don't really get to the meat of the film cranking up until about 80 pages in. And all the mm-hmm. stuff in, that she's adding and 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 uh, putting into putting in there really kind of deepens everything for all these characters. Mm-hmm. And she's do- she does this uh, amazing thing that I kind of want... There, there's always been this thing in the back of my mind every time I've watched Star Trek Three about the relationship between Savick and David Marcus. Well, in a, in the novelization, they 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 comfort each other and they they actually become lovers in those in those last few days before they uh, before they get on the Grissom to go to uh, survey the Genesis planet, mm-hmm. and it's it plays very effectively with the two of them getting to know each other and uh, uh, essentially kind of helping each other pass this you know this rather dark po- point in their lives and it, and of course. That makes you know it makes clear as much as the novelization for the second film did that Savick is half Vulcan and half Romulan, and so right. that that emotion that you know that being very upfront with the people about her emotional states is something that allows that relationship to to, to happen, and yeah. it also if you if you realize while watching the film that they're meant to be that close later on when Marcus is killed when David is killed. 
it's not just a gut punch for for Kirk. It's also a gut punch for her, and right. it's one of those things that kind of deepens everything that comes you know that that comes after it and makes everything really much more interesting emotionally. Right. Uh, right. The uh, some of the other stuff that she puts in there, she adds uh, she adds at the beginning of the novel, she adds uh, uh, a wake that uh, on the Enterprise as they're venturing back to Earth before they get to Space Dock, mm-hmm. a wake that uh, Scotty wanted to have for his nephew. And they uh, they turn it into a, a wake for both his nephew and for Spock. Right. And it's at this wake where uh, we get the first indication that something's going on with with. Uh, with bones, because uh, right. although okay. although you know some pe- some people might think observing that he may have just had a bit too much to drink, he does creep people out at a certain point where it's, he's saying things that really sound like something that Spock would say. Mm-hmm. Um, right. You know, but it's in you know it's in the course of a, you know a, a, a large gathering of people who are attempting to kind of drown their sorrows and move you know move past this this moment of death and mournfulness that they're dealing with, and so it's really kind of an effective thing. Once again, just something that feels absolutely perfect. So that we're our, you know the 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 gradual introduction of McCoy having Spock's Katra is you know it's given more room to flower within the novelization. Well, as you would expect. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, some of the stuff that you might consider filler in the novel, I still think is very good because it's it's. Well, brief, I don't. I didn't mean stuff. that. In, I didn't oh no, mean no, no, that I, I, In I, a derogatory I, way. I mean, oh, I filler. Filler means like, you know, oh, there's that great scene where the grass was growing. I mean, it's actual. <laughs> what I mean in this is more information. Yes. Yes. I mean, there's been some novelizations of films that I've read where you kind of go, "Wow, I almost wish they had." put that in there or oh, if yeah. it had been filmed i wish that it hadn't ended up on the editing room floor mm-hmm. that kind of thing so yeah but yeah not no derogatory meant oh well, well especially not with vonda mcintyre let me by the way wow. people if uh, she did write a number of uh, star trek novels and if you're a fan of that kind of fiction um, hers are some of the best but if you uh, want to read some of her um uh, some of her just uh, standard science fiction. I have heavily recommend two of her novels. Uh, the one that got her the first big notice, big notices in her career is Dream Snake, where she won both the H- the Hugo and the Nebula Award in 1979. Mm. Highly recommended. Okay. Cool. But also uh, her novel from 1998 called The Moon and the Sun, which uh, is fan freaking tastic, and it's kind of an alternate alternate history story. That takes place in um, the the court of King Louis, and uh, I think that uh, is well worth your time. Although apparently a few years ago they they made it into a movie and apparently fucked it completely up. But I haven't watched that yet. Oh, <laughs> I intend boy. to eventually. But uh, you know, when you well. read, if if you were to read that novel, you would realize that yeah, trying to turn it into a two hour movie, you're almost going to have to fuck it up. So the. Uh, yeah. So uh, once again, Vonda McIntyre, somebody wor- somebody well worth your time outside of Star Trek. But right. the, the the thing that I would refer to as uh, being uh, something that could be attacked as being filler is something that I think brilliantly adds to this novelization of Tr- of Trek Three, which is she gives these these often like page or page and a half little uh, little uh, insights into some of the cadets who were on uh, the Enterprise in Star Trek Two and are now dealing with having been through, you know, a full-on freaking space battle. 
Right. Uh, yeah, uh, they kind of got thrown into the deep end. Yeah, yeah. And sure. she does this. I, I think there are at least three or four of those scattered around in like the first 80 pages of the novel. And right. they're really effective because it gives you... I mean, we, we know all the characters that are in these stories. We, we've known some of them since the 1960s. And so at this point in the mid-80s, to kind of give you another view, you know, multiple views of people who have now been around those characters as well and therefore have their own perspectives on not just them, but what they just went through, you know, the, the, the previous story is really nice. And it gives some real insight into uh, uh, ways of uh, looking at these characters that really adds color and really gives texture to things going on in the story. It's, it's, it's good stuff, but once again, it's Vonda McIntyre. I expect brilliance. She was really really good mm-hmm. so um with 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 that uh i think we'll, we'll we'll get back to the klingon bird of play klingon bird of prey let's point out that some people let's have point a out you've been drinking let's point that out <laughs> <laughs> well it's it's lemon tea i don't know how i, I don't know if it's going to do anything to me this might sure be a, it is rodney yeah exactly sure i wish is. i'd been drinking um well let's let's point out that uh some people have had uh criticisms of captain krug because he's played with, by uh, Christopher Lloyd in a little bit of an over-the-top fashion. But I'll be honest with you, I've never had any trouble with him, mainly because the Klingons were always that way, all the way back to the original series. Hmm. So you're wanting me to answer that? Well, I'm just curious. Um, I, I can I, see I, I the flip side I, of it. I can see the flip side of it. I can see how... The, here, here's the one criticism that I, I can kind of nod my head toward and understand, which is that at the time, Christopher Lloyd was primarily known for playing a, a whacked-out character on the sitcom Taxi. Sure. Uh, and, you know, Re- Reverend Jim. And if you have, you know, five years of Reverend Jim in your mental data bank and you sit down and see this see this same man playing a, a vicious Klingon, there might be some gears grinding in your head. So I can understand that. Well, for me also, too, there's uh, the movies, uh, uh, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Mm-hmm. And then there's a movie that I think is completely underrated that I love tremendously, and he's uh, uh, wacky, and that one is uh, Going South, the Jack Nicholson movie. Oh, yeah. And that bug-eyed thing that he does, it's tough under that Klingon makeup to hide it because he is so distinct. I'm not the biggest fan of him him being cast. Um, I find that, uh, although I am impressed with John Larroquette subduing but then Night Court, you know, was... Night Court hadn't happened yet, really. Night Court hadn't happened yet, and we didn't know... We had seen him do some comedy, but in this case, he, he toned it down, and there was one or two other guys on that ship that were pretty darn good. Um, I don't think they had perfected the new version of the Klingon as much as they had later that they would like on Star Trek The Next Generation and later, later television shows where there was things of them to like like their honor the mm-hmm. death thing and all that and we were still in transition i ha- i do have a problem with christopher lloyd i uh, you know I, I, every time i hear him and this is even later you know hey, marty we got to go get the genesis torpedo you know i mean it's just <laughs> sort of it's sort of but it's not terrible but it's still not great either i i wish they had gotten somebody somebody else it was a little it wasn't stunt casting i don't think i think he went in and no. read and I think he's a great actor. There's stuff that he's done that I, you know, there's other films that, you know, they're, they're, they're escaping me where, I mean, the guy deserves a dang Oscar. But I just, 
don't know if he worked as a Klingon for me. Although the makeup was moving towards the next generation makeup, and I think it was it was good. I actually really liked the makeup in the first Star Trek movie, but it was such a shock, like getting a bucket of cold water thrown on you, that I think in this film they were trying to morph it slowly into the beginnings of morphing it over into something that was more alien looking like a, a like a um, a horseshoe crab sort of a looking head arrangement or something yeah. you yeah. know and so i give them that um there was also and this wasn't just with the klingons there are 1980s style jokes in this film that that don't that don't age well i don't even think they were that great when they first happened uh some of the you know be sure you target the engine only Absolutely, sir. And that, yeah, I guess they figured people were going to really be laughing their backsides off, but nobody laughed <laughs> then. And we know he had killed the first guy that got it wrong and, and blew up the Grissom ship. But it's weird. I mean, um, we kind you covered a lot of territory on the film plot-wise. It yeah. almost it's almost like I need to sort of back up ahead, a little bit and go to. Um, the um, one thing I wanted to say is I actually, and I, I think Anthony Taylor said this too. I could be wrong. He'd probably listen to this like losing his mind. But we were talking about how much we actually, in some ways, or I did at least, preferred this this version of James Horner's Star Trek soundtrack to Wrath of Khan. And uh, I can agree with you on that. Yes, it's it's more it's more romantic. It's more poetic. It's more drawn out. It's almost like when Wrath of Khan, when the ship's pulling out of of the dock. It's almost like James Horner doesn't know how to beat Jerry Goldsmith, which you don't beat Jerry Goldsmith. No, you don't. But it was a lot of these tinkling bells and all that kind of stuff, and it seemed kind of hyper. In this one, he kind of got this meditative almost sort of thing like uh, at the beginning of the film or when the ship is flying back to Vulcan or the uh, part where they're trying to escape from space dock. The music is really beautiful. I play it all the time when I'm doing artwork. Hmm. It's very inspirational. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, and Wrath of Khan is still a very, very good soundtrack, but I just like this one better. I think it's something about it. Um, but um, let me see. I've got some notes here, too. I could tell you. I could tell you did by the way you were talking. But well, I, uh, I, th I think you're right. It's, it's, it's something that they actually were asking from him when they were talking with Horner about the score is they wanted something romantic and more sensitive because they wanted the the they felt that those were actually more important than the bigger bombastic ones because there's not really a big space battle in this film but there is a tense standoff and yes. so the the idea is to uh uh to uh well let's put it this way horner apparently had written uh what, what is referred to as spock's theme uh -huh. for the second film for wrath of khan right he used that theme threaded throughout certain uh sequences of the uh of the of the movie to kind of keep that kind of uh that that sound cue in mind to almost wink and a nod toward anybody you know, kind of subliminally give you an idea that spock is kind of you know it's kind of the point of what everything that's going on not that the title doesn't spell that out for you to be blunt but the the the, the stuff that he wrote, I love the the kind of almost martial stuff that he wrote for the Klingons because it's 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 yeah, very percussive. 
yeah, it's, yeah. it's it's really good. There's it's there's, a bit it's a bit of a Jerry Goldsmith like the the Jerry Goldsmith yes. Klingon music in Star Trek the Motion Picture is incredible. This mm-hmm. was good. I the thing we're talking about here is either Jerry wasn't available or he was costing too much by the time. I mean, I talked to Nick Meyer uh, about about uh, Star Trek Six and trying to hide. He goes, oh, Jerry Goldsmith was too expensive by then and so was james horner by then so i went oh, wow. with cliff cliff eidelman who was the new guy another great soundtrack but it's you know there's budgetary concerns too here and james horner was was not completely new but he was a heck of a lot newer than jerry and uh he did a good job i think that the klingon music is real good i think the percussion like you said is really good mm-hmm. um so anyway they're they're there and and they're returning home and you get um uh, uh morris is greg morris the guy that played barney on mission impossible his son comes and talks to kirk about uh hey are we is there a possibility we'll get a hero's welcome kind of a thing and all that i didn't know two years later and he's on all these shows now that you watch like doom patrol and all these other television shows that he's in. Of course, he's much older now, but it was nice to see him, given the fact that Mission Impossible and Star Trek were both sold by Herbert Solo, I think, if I remember correctly, on the same weekend, and both Star Trek and Mission Impossible are still going (laughs) all these years (laughs) later. That's true, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean... um, so anyway, they go and they go to the new the new space dock. This is a new thing that we that seen, and it's pretty cool looking. All these dishes and everything with a giant hangar bay, and all that. And the ship comes in, and they show the Excelsior. And I remember the first time I saw that ship, I went, "Ooh, ooh, I don't like that." And that was like the first few times. But then I was looking later at a book of trains from like the 1930s and 40s and stuff like that the sort of art deco-y sort of looking trains not steam engines not ones that still had the old look of the old wild west but later and uh you know the kind that uh you know is all glitzy and and uh chrome and everything like that and i went back and i looked at the looked at it again and, eh, it's kind of growing on me and now i love it it's like an art deco version of the enterprise with that flat dish and that weird rounded bottom looks like one of those trains flipped upside down so i've grown to love that but anyway so they get in there now well you do you do know the story of the excelsior right um well here's the thing it was stanley's favorite saying yes well no uh uh in star trek 2 there was originally a scene that shatner helped to shit can Mm. that uh where sulu was elevated to captain status Uh uh-huh and you know Every, 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 you know, everybody who made the film was very aware that Shatner did make sure that that scene got shit canned, and uh, the uh, this you know suitably pissed off George Takei, and the the reason and the thing is that the the reason the Excelsior is there in the first place that was going to be Sulu's first command, right? Uh, and that is something that is retained in that in mcintyre's novelization where she points out that uh, the you know the reason sulu's excited to see it is that he had essentially put uh his captaincy on hold just long enough to to uh say yes to admiral kirk, uh, admiral kirk to go and help out with these cadets on this mm-hmm. one on you know on this one voyage this one little shakedown cruise and help things help help him out before taking over the excelsior Right. Okay. And one of the neater things in the in the novelization is that because of the political bullshit going on with the Genesis planet, 
the Federation has to pull Sulu to the side and say, we're going to let this other guy who's uh, been kind of riding herd on the, you know, the getting the ship up to getting the Excelsior up to speed. We're going to let him have it for now until all this blows over. And this of course is a major devastating blow to Sulu. And one of the main reasons why he is more than willing to tell the Federation to go fuck off, to go help, to go help Spock. Um, right. So that, that is interesting. Of course, you will notice that uh, Nicholas Meyer, when he came back to do six, made sure that Sulu was the captain of the Excelsior in the beginning of that film. <laughs> there was he he was not going to fuck around with it anymore. This is happening, and right. I thought I thought that that was pretty nice. But that is uh, that that to me is um, I, I like having the Excelsior there. I never I never disliked the design or anything like that. I just thought, oh, okay, so this would be like the next, you know, this is the next step up. I don't, you know, I, I think like everybody else, you know, we all we all have that same feeling of. Yeah, the ship's twenty years old. That's no reason to shoot it in the head. I mean, what are we doing here? Well, Why it's are we one of those things it? too. You got to realize, um, and I'm not as old as some of the people I went and saw these films with who were watching Star Trek. Although I did see Star Trek in the '60s, uh, I saw it in Europe about a year or two after other people were seeing it here in this country. But it was um, one of those things where change was new at the time. Uh, Captain Kirk getting older and putting on a pair of glasses was unheard of. Yeah. It was always they were at their pen. We're getting stories, and it became okay. Actually, like I said before, I think Wrath of Khan is one of the great breakers of that tradition of that scaredy cat sort of. I don't want to see somebody older. I don't want the Enterprise not to be there. I don't want there to be something that outdoes the Enterprise. Yeah, and, yeah. and I think that my first reaction when I saw the Excelsior was a bit of that. I was still from the old school. But they were pushing it in this film. And I'm like, look, you killed Spock in the last film. And now you're going to, what the hell are you going to do to the Enterprise? And there was whisperings about what was going to happen in this movie. Uh, of course, you know, they steal the Enterprise when the Admiral uh, tells tells them, look, you know, Enterprise has seen its day. It's over. You know, it's well it's that and they they learn that they, they learn that they they need to take it back to the Genesis plant. They need to go back there to try to recover. Well, that, and that was the thing he told him. And that's a scene that I love there. I will say this. There is something that the movies do every once in a while that kind of gets on my bloody nerves. Some of the people, some of the higher ups in this film are played real well. The main admiral, oh, yeah. who who says, you know, there will be no refit. He was really well done. The security guy that gets McCoy grabs McCoy when he's trying to charter a ship, an illegal ship. Yes, he's good. But James B. Sicking and his little crew, and then the guy that heads the Grissom. It was the beginning of that other Federation commanders are dumb as shit in comparison to Captain Kirk. Well, that and they're they're smarmy assholes. Smarmy assholes and you never saw that on the original show. The only thing you ever had is when one of their one of their captains went rogue and did whatever the hell he wanted to do and became a criminal, but a lot of times it was like the guys that he met with were at his level. They were as good right. or almost as good as Captain Kirk and this 80s thing 
was hey, he's the jerk of the film, so we get a laugh well, at and it. That, and that is one of the very 80s things about this particular film. Right. Is that James have, B. Sicking is there, and he goes... Well, not uh, only that, the commander of the Grissom as well. And the, the, the commander yeah, of the Grissom is, is a guy who, who seems like he's afraid of his own damn shadow. Yeah. The, it, yeah, it, how did you get there? And they do it later in other, other Star Trek films, and you're sort of like, this is kind of stupid. I mean, I can't believe that Captain Kirk... I mean, the, the Federation wouldn't have gotten out of its infancy if guys acted like this. Agreed. And uh, and everything. So well, there's that's a just bit it. of that. It, it is something that is it's very much an infection of the 80s where it's almost yeah. as if i mean don't get me wrong it's storytelling shorthand to sure. make you know to very quickly establish that the you know that you don't like someone make them an officious dumbass prick mm-hmm. uh, make, you know make them someone who's very obviously full of himself and a dipshit yeah he's got but, a baton and he's yeah. sitting there filing his nails like shatner third season when he gets turned into a woman or whatever right. and and then the guy goes, boy, when he when he leaps into warp, he's really going to be in for a shock. And then they do this thing where Scotty has sabotaged it. And while there's some elements of that I like, I love the escape of the Enterprise out of dry dock. I love the music oh, yeah. and everything. I hate the jokes. I hate breaking McCoy out. Uh, don't get smart tiny. The guy says to Sulu and then Sulu I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't mind any of that because quite honestly, no matter what got said, it was, it was clear from the jump that they were going to have to put all these people down, that they were going to have to subdue all these people. So I don't mind but, that because, yeah, it, does, to me because it, was, it doesn't stop. It doesn't it's stop bad. anything. The jokes aren't funny. They're not. I mean, I was sitting there in the theater wincing and the whole part where, where Uhura pulls the phaser on the guy goes, Oh, you want some excitement? Well, you know, this is fantasy and all this sort of stuff. And I was just sort of like, as your adrenaline going and, goes, and nobody was laughing it was sort of like it was a little cringy then it's worse now um when um uh but you know sicking is standing there or any he, and he's uh, uh you know uh, doing what he's doing and then finally the uh excelsior goes to rocket towards the uh the enterprise and it slows down and there's these noises and there's this sort of uh, the noises the thing, were were too the much. only the only thing they didn't do was have yeah. a toilet flush or something yeah and uh, of course I, we although had, I did, had a I very do, good actor like, was in that moment yeah. though is the fact that they've got miguel ferrer in there who would who was acting like a smarmy it, asshole it was a smarmy but but the thing was <laughs> it's the same character he played they, in robocop but yeah but in RoboCop, they channeled it, and it was a thing of incredible oh, yeah. beauty. Yeah, yeah. He was so good, and so he was so good on Twin Peaks and stuff. I mean, what they had him do—he was even mm-hmm. good in the in the movie Deep Star Six. He was the best thing in that film, and uh, I've, and everything. I've tried, he, to, I've tried to purge my memory of Deep Star Six, but well, okay, he's I'll the he's the it. best thing. He's the best thing in it. The movie. I tried to watch it again like five years ago. I go, ooh, this doesn't hold up for <laughs> for a, a rip off of uh, of the abyss. Uh, but anyway. Um, there, there's there's too too much of those jokes and uh, and McCoy it's like but oh I would it's say that I do like for every I do like if you want to call it a joke uh, I do like the look on um, on um, Scotty's face as he as he drops those those pieces into oh McCoy's no that's hand. the one that's, a, that I, that's the one thing I, where you're just like tag that of is course perfect. <laughs> and I still use that that saying to the state anytime anything technological fucks up anytime something happens with the car that back 50 years ago you wouldn't have to take into the shop you got to take the car in the shop tomorrow because it's doing something goofy that a modern car would do that an old car wouldn't do it reminds me of that goddamn scene in in (laughs) in 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 rebel without a cause where the guy dies 
And I, this is to me is the thing about modern technology, and Scotty's scene is similar to that. The guy dies because his cuff gets caught in the in the the door handle of his car, and he doesn't jump out of the car in time and goes over the cliff and dies. Mm-hmm. He dies because of these little uh, these little uh, 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 things that we've given ourselves to make our lives a little easier. And Scotty is standing there, and he goes, "The more complex the, the plumbing, the easier it is to stop up the drain." And I have used that that yeah, probably when there's a plumbing problem. <laughs> but but it's like that's one joke in there that I absolutely love, and it's not really a joke; it's just a fact because it was so easy to, to disable that ship. Um, but, um, yeah, I mean, it's one of those things of the eighties. That's why a lot of eighties movies aren't doing so well on their replays anymore. There's some of these films I've watched in the last four or five years, ones that I absolutely loved at one time. And you go back and you rewatch them and it go, Ooh, Ooh, you know, there's ones that get around it completely back to the future. still funny. The jokes still land. But other ones, I find I'm like, wow, that's yeah. I really- think the reason I think the the reason the Back to the Future films still continue to hold up in a kind of miraculous way uh-huh. is the guys who wrote that were a team that had been writing together for at that point well over ten years, if not yeah. maybe twelve, and had been through the fire. And the therefore, jokes land. Yeah, the yeah. They jokes knew land. how to. Well, not only that, just the, they knew that the the jokes have to push the story. And yeah. uh, they don't have they, they can't be extraneous because the minute the joke's extraneous, you're going to you're going to be sitting in an editing room going, we need to cut this. Yeah. And that's my problem with some of these in, in this film. It doesn't ruin the film, but it does give you some cringy moments. So the uh, the Enterprise has now gotten away and it's, you know, it's 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 beat up. I mean, the ship, you know, it's still got those wounds on the side of it from Khan, yeah. you know, phasering the hell out of it and photon torpedoing it and everything else. And they get to the planet, and the Klingons are waiting there, but they beam down to the planet and captured Savick and Spock and David And uh, after they blew up the Grissom. Here's something. This is an unusual thing, to, and I don't know. You might have been too young at the time. I was a little bit sort of like, ooh, that, that, that hurts, is... In the, the fact- theater, it was a. In the theater, it was it was rough. It was one of those things where. No, no. I mean, when the Grissom gets destroyed, where yeah. the Klingons target it, and it was like, that's the name of that ship is named after the astronaut Grissom, that died yeah. in the Apollo One fire. Yeah. And I was like, God, you really did. Why did you pick that name and then blow the ship up? I felt kind of weird about that. It was almost mm. like. A bit of a slap in the face. I mean, it was sort of like, well, we're honoring him, and oh no, he got blown up, just like he did. Almost. I, I mean, I, I don't I, know, I, man. I, to me, to me, it, it sounds like uh, foreshadowing. May, maybe so. Now, maybe so. Yeah. I mean, I'm not disagreeing with that. It's it's just sort of one of those things. I winced. It's like, oh my god. And by the way, let's get back to that ship. That ship was so wild looking. I love that design. When it's you a good, and I are like at Wonderfest, it's yeah. weird though. It's yeah. it's 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 not the it's not as majestic as the Enterprise. It is a science vessel and all that kind of stuff. But I mean, you go into Wonderfest and somebody built a big old giant mock up of that thing. And you're like, wow, that is that is so cool and odd looking. Mm-hmm. And that's one thing I like about this film is the two the two new designs that we saw in it. And it was also the first time we had seen that Klingon design too. It was like a small version of their big their big uh, uh, war machines. You know, I like, that the, little, I like the big space. I like space dock as well, both interior space and exterior. Space dock, yeah. 
Yeah, they did a really good job. The whole the whole backing out scene and, and getting mm-hmm. out of there was wonderful. But um, so you get to the planet, and there's a couple of scenes here that are almost shocking. Well, they are shocking. Well, we, we skipped over one of my favorite well, things in the movie, oh, which is sorry? we get Mark Leonard back. Ambassador, I would have come to Vulcan to express my deepest sympathies. Spare me your human platitudes, Kirk. I have been to your government. I've seen the Genesis information and your own report. Then you know how bravely your son met his death. Why did you leave him on Genesis? Spock trusted you, and you denied him his future. My son of future? Only his body was in death, Kirk, and you were the last one to be with him. Yes, I was. And you must know that you should have come with him to Vulcan. But why? Because he asked you to. He entrusted you. With his very essence. With everything that was not of the body. He asked you to bring him to us. And to bring that which he gave you. His katra. His living spirit. Sir. Your son meant more to me than you can know. I'd have given my life if it would have saved his. Believe me when I tell you, he made no request of me. He would not have spoken of it openly. Then how is it? Kirk, I must have your thoughts. May I join your mind? So yeah, Mark Leonard is back. Uh, of course, he did have a small role as a Klingon at the very beginning of the first movie. Yes. Uh, but yes, now we have him back in the role of Sarek, Spock's father, who is who walks in the door a little pissed off with Kirk because is where the hell is my son's body and what have you done? And yeah. I, I think that's the perfect jumping off point to, to, to get the second part of the story rolling because up till then we've been in mournful mode, but he shows up and you've got a Vulcan who's obviously a little emotional and not thrilled with what's going on and drops all the information in our ear. And now we know what's wrong with McCoy and we know why the movie was called the search for Spock. So, yeah, there was a great, there's a great moment. One, one thing I'll say, this is my first, this is my fanish moment. Mark Leonard was the first actor, person of some note or fame that I ever met. And I was a babbling idiot when I met him because I have a <laughs> tough time. I still have a tough time around actors that I care, care a lot about. But he, I uh, met him around 75, 76 here in town in Tallahassee. They had a little Star Trek convention. And he showed up, and it was like, oh, my gosh, this is actually somebody I've seen on television. Well, he was wonderful uh, and everything. And, you know, he got to come back for these movies. And then later he was on, like, Next Generation. He did the Death of Sarek episodes and things like that. But he was really good at playing a Vulcan. He was excellent at playing a Romulan in Balance of Terror. Mm -hmm. And he, you know, there were certain people that you hear that were possibly considered to play Spock at some point in time. I think Martin Landau was one of them. I could see Martin Landau playing a Vulcan. I could definitely see Mark Leonard playing a Vulcan. I don't think he was offered the role before Leonard Nimoy or anything like that, or or, uh, that he was ever offered the role. But it was one of those where certain people 
have that ability to play that kind of character. Uh, like, um, what's his face? Who played Janos Skorzeny, the vampire in the Night Stalker? Barry Atwater. Oh, yeah. Atwater he, he was a, done one. Yeah. Well, he did. He was in that one with, uh, you know, uh, uh, Abraham Lincoln and the rock creature oh, and where they're of fighting. Course. Of course. And, and, and certain people have that ability to, to just look Vulcan-like. Well, it's, uh, it's, a, it's a stoicism. It's the, uh, it's the, the, the uh, emotions under the surface uh, with 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 a uh, a stern facade, it's it's stern it's, facade yeah. and and a little bit of facial structure too. There's a there's a there's an unusual sort of a chiseledness to those faces too, mm-hmm. and and so I really love seeing him in this film. As a matter of fact, if I look back over my shoulder, I've got a photograph of him autographed from that scene that you're talking about. And uh, where he goes in and he does a mind meld with Kirk, which is a really good scene. It's very well done. And you can see this is, for a Vulcan to be this upset, which by our standards isn't very upset, but he's upset enough. It's like, you know, you and me. A human would be screaming. Yes, for us, it would be like, this is the way we are when we're, you know, with the way he's talking. It's like, hey, man, you guys charge me too much on my utility bill when you're down at the office and and stuff like that. But he goes through this thing, and then when he begs, uh, you know, for Kirk to, you know, he apologizes to him. And everything like that, and then and then Kirk goes, uh, you know, I I he he would have found some way, and then he goes back and plays the footage and sees where he he gave his Katra over to McCoy, his brain, his soul, whatever you want to call it, and it was a, it was a really really well done scene with the towering inferno backdrop painting in Kirk's apartment again. Well, the. I had to to bring up Towering Inferno. I'm sorry. I'm going to ignore it and move forward. Hey! That's a a discussion for another time. We need to do Uh, Towering Inferno someday. Promise me and I'll shut up. I have no problem with that. It wouldn't be a problem at all. As a matter of fact, I wouldn't mind doing a kind of loose series of 70s disaster films. It would be fun. You heard it, people. You heard it. Okay. So, anyway, (laughs) so they they figure it out. Okay, that's, that's a contract. Um, so anyway, we ended up, so they, they, they figure it out. And now do we go from that scene then next to him talking to the Admiral again? Uh, yes. He talks to the Admiral. The Admiral says, look, I kicked, I kicked it, you know, I kicked it up the line and there's just no way this is going to happen. And, but I love when he tells, when the Admiral tells Kirk, he goes, look, it's just a forbidden subject. And it's like, it ain't going to happen. All kind of stuff. And then they move over to Kirk very subtly. And this is the thing with with Shatner. People, Shatner overacts. It was brilliant when he goes, "I hear you. I had yeah. to try." And, 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 yeah, yeah, and, and, and it's and he's very obviously the way he's holding his his body changes. He's sitting down. The way he's holding his torso and his arms, he shifts. He's yeah. doing everything he can to project that he's being honest when he says this to his friend, the admiral. Yeah, uh, but. <laughs> He's. It, it's also clear that he, you know, five seconds later, he's like, "Yeah, I told the motherfucker what he need to hear." <laughs> I'm yeah. out the door. Yeah, I mean, it's it's one of those where, um, yeah, that's a that's a great scene, you know. And then of course we get into the, you know, he gets up, he goes, "Okay, I'll talk to you later," and he goes to the elevator and he said, "The answer, the word is no. The answer is no, and I'm going to go anyway." And then we get into the uh, the uh, escape of the Enterprise or the uh, mm-hmm. getting getting the Enterprise out of town. 
Well, it's the caper. It's the uh, the samurais gathering to do the thing that they're not that they've been told not to do. It's uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, there's you know, it's one of those things where, um, I mean, uh, there was even I can't even remember what episode it was. One of those episodes of of um, was it uh, Deep Space Nine or whatever? Where somebody brought up Captain Kirk and these two like these two Federation police officers go oh, Kirk. Oh my god, that guy broke every rule. I mean, they just like <laughs> looked like they had he headaches. Smothered every yeah. It was absolutely hilarious, you know. But um, and then uh, now, okay, so where are we? Because we I I jumped ahead and then we had to jump oh, back. Oh no, no, no. Uh, well we, um, um, we so we've got uh Krug and the the Klingon bird of prey with the information about the Genesis planet. So they're headed there. On uh. The, they get there before. Well, we have you know they steal the Enterprise and get away, and um, the they blow uh, up. They blow up the Klingons. Blow up the Grissom. Just trying to disable it. Some idiot Klingon screws up and blows the whole ship up and calls it a lucky shot. And then Krug kills his guy. That was that's one of those moments that I think is too over the top for me. I can't imagine a guy being killed just because he made a mistake. Yes, he blew it up. Yes, he killed those people and everything. Well, see, that's another thing that I like out of the novelization is is Fonda McIntyre makes it very clear that the the way things are structured on these Klingon warships uh-huh. is to show any kind of weakness is to invite someone to challenge you for the captain's seat. And so uh, if that was someone that you saw not just as incompetent, but someone perhaps, you know, gaming gaming for your chair, putting one putting one down might give you, you know, probably gives you a, a couple of weeks of uh, everybody else with those kind of ambitions backing off. I, so. I got that, but you're not a lawyer. You are actually taking the book and applying it to the film when the film is the film. And the oh no no! I'm just I'm just saying that that, that fits very clearly into the cling. Oh no, we don't get that sense. But we I still have never had sense. a problem with. I've never had a problem with that scene I, because I I didn't. I, it's not terrible. I just think it's a lot. It's like if it's like those movies where the villain has got his team of bad guys and he and he's he's killing so many of them. It's like after a while you'd sit there and go, Hey, how much longer have I got to live? You know, uh, uh, like like the movie Cliffhanger, where the villains are just bumping each other off, and it's like, what kind of a team is this? It's like there's no team; it's just waiting for your your turn for your boss to get mad at you and then kill you or one of your uh, coworkers. But um, so they're sitting there; they're they're at the Genesis planet, and the Enterprise shows up, and of course, Krug realizes that it's um, it is as he calls him the Genesis uh, commander. Mm-hmm. or whatever and they get into this battle uh it's kind of cool it was a little different it was sort of like a few f- shots are fired and then but the enterprise is not i mean it's it's well, battle it's, it's scotty battle has jury, yeah scotty has jury rigged it so that only a few people are needed to actually um, make get it, it function. around yeah make but it if, function but it's not ready for, it's not in battle uh, ability yeah. and they can't and do anything uh, can't do anything crazy because they're all everybody on the ship is on the bridge and if and anything what, goes wrong in engineering there's nobody down there so and this is one moment that i really do like christopher lloyd is the guy go he goes you know somehow something ain't right here and the guy goes uh i think we've got an advantage over and the guy goes why and he goes because i trust my instincts and he he can smell something isn't right with the way kirk is acting yeah 
Yeah, because uh, they could have already just blown him out of the sky. Yeah, they could have blown him out of the sky. He goes, "We should be toast already," and all that. And then this is where we get into a, a double punch to the stomach, where he says, "You know, I want the Genesis information," and Kirk is like, "Yeah," because okay. we 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 left out the fact that on on the on the Genesis planet, the Klingons capture. Uh, David Marcus Savick and the now, as far as we can tell, late oh, teens, I, I, early twenties Spock. I guess so, I didn't. I guess I didn't say. Did I say that earlier? Any, no, no, I, no. no. I, we I, we, we, br- we brushed completely past it. But okay. yeah, the the, Kling, the Klingons on the Genesis planet have captured uh, the the. Well, yeah, and, and just Spock. a little bit before that, too, when they're walking around, they find the Spock torpedo and those creatures around the torpedo. There's these weird Which sort is of amazing stuff. Yeah. They've gotten big, but, uh, you know, and I, I don't dislike that, but when he kills one of them and then his joke is uh, nothing moving here, it's sort of like, eh, it's funny. But he ends up. Those creatures uh, look fantastic. No, no, there was nothing wrong with the monster. Oh, no, no, no. The, 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 but, but that's just it. To my mind, that is one of the reasons I love this movie is that that didn't even have to be in the movie, and it looks great. <laughs> and it's, it's an, just... it's a, well, it's an offshoot of the energy that is allowing Spock to be regenerated too. Mm-hmm, it's almost mm-hmm. like a bit of a, it's a bit of a. Okay, these things were on the torpedo too, so they, you know, what what what's his fate? What David says they they were fruitful and multiplied, but they started off like trilobite looking, and now all of a sudden they're a combination of like an eel and a snake and and a, uh, in these weird looking things. And, and credit to the sound department because the, the the noises that damn thing makes both Very as the little guttural. slime both as the little slimy things on the ground and then as the uh, the version that attacks Krug man yeah. great sound effects really selling that creature yeah and so they uh, you know but now we're at the point where they've got uh, young Spock 20 year old Spock uh, with no mind of his own but uh, and uh, and Savick by the way let's I want to talk a little bit about Robin Curtis Ah, she um, had a very difficult job here. She had a very difficult job, and I still like her a lot. Um, it's one of those weird things where if you had known Kirstie Alley was going to do what she did and demand to be put up higher up on the ranking of the marquee, and I don't know if it was payment or what, but she felt that she was like right back behind Spock or where Spock was going to be or McCoy or something like that. Well, my understanding, like, my understanding was that the initial idea was that she would be the, the, the character that would slide into that Vulcan place in future she stories. would but so she, she was asked, still but she she was asking for more money than they were willing to pay one of the reports i've read is that she would have been being paid as much as as shatner and it's like yeah, yeah guess what's not going to happen yeah yeah guess what's not going to happen and so she you know so they ended up going so they bring in robin curtis and robin curtis to me um is is different from kirstie alley kirstie alley was uh, I guess in a way more exotic, I guess I would say, mm-hmm. but, but Robin Curtis seemed like she was five years older than, than, uh, Kirstie Alley. And I kind of liked that. It was sort of like, she was a no nonsense Vulcan slash Romulan. And, uh, other than the fact that she had one of those eighties haircuts, I actually really liked her. I thought she was beautiful. Uh, she was interesting. She had uh, very good lines. And I was watching it again today, you know, getting ready for this show. And I was really paying attention to her also for the fact that in uh, 
in October, I'm actually going to um, be uh, be down there in Bartow, Florida, and 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 sitting in the same room with her and talking to her. I'm going to get a chance to talk to her. I've met her once decades ago, years ago when Star Trek Three was brand new, but but I'm looking forward to seeing her. But I really liked her version of Savic, although it was very different or it seemed different from Kirstie Alley and I was sad that she was in this one and then partially in four and then she was gone. It was sort of like why? Why Why did they get rid of her? Um, but I did like her. I like her in this but she's a, a, a little bit more no-nonsense than Kirstie Alley. Does that make any sense? True. Very true. I mean I- she's um, a, 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 she just seemed more I don't know. Something something about her worked uh, but it was Different. I mean, I remember the first viewing of the film. I'm watching. I'm going, oh, a completely different person playing her. And I think I might have already known that that was going to happen. But it's still, uh, uh, you know, uh, quite a bit different. But she, you know, she uh, is aware of Ponfar with Spock, and that he's going to go through uh, sexual sexual desires and all this other kind of stuff. And she, as he's aging rapidly, she's trying to help him deal with that. And then the Klingons grab her and Spock, and then they drag him with David, who's got a black eye or a fat lip or something. I don't remember what the hell it is. And they line up in a straight thing, and while they're talking to Kirk, to, uh, to, you know, telling Kirk, you know, I want the Genesis information and all that kind of stuff. And then he threatens to kill one of the members, and he says, I'm going to do that. I'm going to kill one of them. And I remember being in the theater and going, there's no way they're going to do this that fast. There's no way they're going to off somebody because all three of these people are so important and everything like that. Mm-hmm. And then they go to kill Savick. David spins around, starts fighting with the Klingon. And me and my buddy were sitting in the theater going, here's where Captain Kirk's son shows what he's made of. And the next thing you know, he's got a big-ass knife planted in his chest, and he's breathing his last breath. Yep. And it was like getting kicked in the balls. I was like, oh, my God. And then they tell, they hand the communicator over to Savick, and she goes, Captain David's dead. And Shatner goes into, and it's perfectly done, full Shatner mode. Mm -hmm. But it is an amazing scene. I've heard people say this scene is horrible. It's overacted. Oh, I disagree. Bullshit. Bullshit. It is an, um, hey, see, Kaiju even agrees with me. Kaiju, get the fuck back on your bed. Go on over there. Don't strike. We'll talk about, listen. You hear that growling dog? I know it. I know it. People, people, people ragging on Shatner. Go lay down. It's that dog pissing the dog off. That dog's pissing the dog off. Well, it's what I do. It's like the dog comes over and there's a a mode we got and I know that if any person on the planet's going to appreciate this mode for my dog it's going to be you we call it Nashy mode (laughs) it is where the dog comes over wants to play and starts growling at me and every once I'll bear my fangs or I'll take my hand and I'll crumple it like a werewolf hand like Nashy and the dog will immediately start (laughs) to growl but now I heard of something about Shatner so don't rag on Shatner this scene gets to me every time he doesn't even make it back into his chair. He falls down. Everybody's looking at him, realizing the, the pain he's going through. Yep. And he says, you Klingon bastard, you killed my son. Somebody on Facebook is like, God, that overacting when his son dies. It's like, his son just got killed. His son just got murdered. It's brilliant. It's 
brilliant. It's it's it, the guy should get an Oscar for that scene. You know, well, I agree with you. I love this quote from uh, Leonard Nimoy about it. He said, "On the day of shooting that scene, uh, he and I—that would be Shatner and he—got ourselves off into a corner, discussed it slowly in a relaxed atmosphere privately. What I said to him was this." You have to decide how far you want to go with this. How far you want to take this reaction. My opinion is that you can go pretty far and get away with it. Maybe strip mm-hmm. off some of the veneer of the Admiral, the hero, always in charge, always on top of the situation, and show us a vulnerable person, unquote. Mm-hmm. He took it further, frankly, than I expected him to, and it was scary. I mean, how many space epics do you see where your hero on receiving news stumbles back and falls on the person's own ship? You don't see that a lot. It was a scary thing for all of us, hoping that it would be perceived as a very touching moment. Some little kid breaks into laughter in the audience and you're dead. We did several takes and used the one where we really thought Bill lost control and stumbled and fell. It looked accidental, not like a performance. I'm very moved by it. In my opinion, it is some of the best work he has ever done. It looked as though he had received a physical jolt, as if somebody had hit him with the information. He looks deeply hurt. Some of the most personal and vulnerable work I've ever seen done in the role of Kirk. Yep. Yeah, I think it was amazing. I think that when he does it, I mean, I, I find myself, uh, you know, bordering on tears every time. I don't know how many times I've seen that scene, mm-hmm. but the way he says it, the way he does it, it's brilliant. It rips your guts out, too, because you I just couldn't believe what was happening in the theater the first time. I have to try to rush back to the first viewing because... That's where all the surprises are. Yeah. But I was like, wow, they killed his kid. They killed his son. And we expected this to be one of those things because in the last film, the son and the dad kind of made up. They sort of. They reconciled. They they didn't understand. Well, yeah, they just didn't understand each other. And it was like, look, you know, I mean, you did a great job. I'm, I'm proud to be your son. And then the next film, he gets a Klingon blade in his chest, trying to trying to save, uh, you know, not only his best friend in some capacity, but this, uh, you know, lady uh, uh, crew member, and he's dead. And and then this is when Kirk gets really dark, and uh, and then it sets that that scene of complete shock, then sets up the next scene of complete shock for anybody who's oh yeah loved, loved star trek for all those years and when kirk is standing there and they've got him backlit and he goes i swear to you we're not finished yet and there have been a few rumors floating around or little things i had heard about about this next thing about the enterprise I, about the enterprise and i yeah. wasn't sure yeah. or whatever and then that's when they go in and start that whole you know, uh, uh, countdown, and they 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 agree to let the Klingons come over to their ship and take them all prisoner and all that kind of stuff. And then they start the countdown that we'd seen. At, was it one or two episodes we had seen? We'd seen the in the one with Frank Gorshin. Uh, where I believe was, I believe only in one. But yeah. only in one, only in one. I, I think I, so. I, I thought that there was another time they mentioned doing it, but I could be wrong. And then so they're so they do that. And they started up, and I'm sitting here thinking it ain't gonna happen, it ain't gonna happen. But then I'm like, well, they just killed his kid, and Spock died in the last film. Maybe they're gonna, and the Klingons beam over, Kirk and his group beam down to the planet, and all of a sudden, 
the ship. They walk into the uh, the Klingons, you know, go through the ship, go to the bridge. And there's only one thing about this I'm not crazy about is when he goes, it's the only thing speaking. Well, you can tell what a countdown is. And Krug tells them, yells for them to get out of there. And all of a sudden, the bridge starts to blow up. And then we see an exterior view of the bridge start to blow apart in chunks. Mm-hmm. And then you see a big close-up of like the dish melting like with thousands of pit holes in it and they're all cooking and burning and then the ship then turns towards the camera i actually was watching this about six months ago and i said linda come back in here and watch this This is one of the greatest special effects in film history oh it's amazing as far as i'm concerned because as the ship then starts to rotate toward us the dish then blows apart. It doesn't even, it, 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 it pops, but it, it actually liquefies. It's, it's, it's like there's chunks flying off of it, but the rest of it's just like white milk. It, and, and you know how they, you know how they, they they did that. I don't know how they used, uh, they coated the, the thing in styrofoam. And then of course you just heat the styrofoam and that's what gave that melting effect. Yeah. It was wild. It yeah, was and, it's just, and, it, and it's absolutely brilliantly done because it looks like what they exa- exactly what they wanted it to look like. It's, it's it was really perfect. Nice. It's yeah. a perfect and but in the theater that first day, if I had had time to think, I'd be there going, "What are you doing to my ship? My favorite <laughs> spaceship of all time." Yeah. yeah, but 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 it was so well done and so wild that all I could say when that dish blew apart, I went. <laughs> Like I'd been yeah. punched in the like stomach. And there was other people, other people did the same thing. It was like, that was so big. That was perfectly handled. And that's the thing about this movie is that it has flaws, but it has chunks of greatness in it and, and balls the size of grapefruit that it would do some of the things that it did. So it's, it's an unusual film. It's like, you, you know what I'm saying? You're, I'm mm-hmm. sort of trapped between, no, it's not as good as these other ones, but there's moments in it that are so critical and so pinnacle to the history of Star Trek now, yep. they have to be recognized, and it affects the rest of the films, you know? Oh, yeah. So. Well, that, that's one of the most the, – the, I'll never forget that feeling, seeing that for the first time in the theater, and I think at some point, somehow, I knew something happened to the Enterprise. Yeah. And so it wasn't a complete shock, but it was still – a, a real gut punch to have yeah. uh, to have it happen right there in front of you, and then I'll, I'll never forget. All, I, I I don't remember who I was with. I don't know if it was with family or if I were you know, if I was alone or with a few, bunch of friends. I really don't have a clue how I first saw the film in the theater, but I remember sitting there because by this time by this time in the story we're well aware that ge- that the Genesis planet is unstable and is coming apart. Right, and uh, there there came that moment when you realize. They're down on the planet surface, and they don't have a ship. And so I go from, holy shit, they destroyed the Enterprise. They they blew it up. Yeah. And my next thought is, and they're on a planet that's about to come apart. Yeah. And that, that was the next thought I had, which was, oh, hell, out of the frying pan into the fire. What are they going to do now? Yes. Because at that point, it did not occur to me, to hell with it, we take the bird of prey, you know. Yeah, I mean, there's the, the scene with them, they beam down to the surface, and you see the Enterprise oh, yeah. Streaking burning into the up atmosphere. in the atmosphere, which, I mean, the chances of them being in the right spot is 
mathematically pretty pretty much a stretch but romantically <clears throat> i'll go i'll take the romance over oh, the, yeah. the the, the reality but it is so well done it is so beautiful and then when kirk says my god bones what have i done and he goes do what you always do you know t- turn a situation into a fighting chance for life and you know this is one thing about d kelly is so far in this film he's had a few scenes uh, a couple of them a little corny uh the first scene where you know, Kirk goes into Spock's quarters and McCoy's in there with his eyes bugging out. He could always do crazy when he wanted to, like mm-hmm. in uh, yep. in that Joan Collins episode where he gets injected with the stuff. He can do crazy. DeForest Kelly is Star Trek's greatest actor as far as I'm concerned. Certainly. And he, and, he, and he is almost a secret weapon across the board because you forget. He's so good at it. He's such a naturalistic actor that you yeah. completely forget just how good he can be. Yeah, and in this film, that he 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 says those he says lines like that, and it's like, yeah, this is the McCoy, this is the divorce Kelly that that I want to to have. I mean, like I said before, he's the only guy that gets a good scene, a really a fully good scene in Star Trek Five. That's how good an actor he is. He actually gets a <laughs> great scene, but in this one, they you know they're there, uh, and there'll be another scene with them later, but. Okay, so well, he he has at the very end of the film, he has absolutely one of my best little acting moments, which has which has no dialogue whatsoever. It's just him tapping his the side of tapping his, his forehead. Yeah, me yeah. and you, pal, we were together, and uh, yeah, but you know, so they they they're down now on the planet's surface. And they, uh, they, I like these new phasers in Star Trek Three. As a matter of fact, I ran out and bought one as soon as you know there was. I was at a, a bootleg garage kit of it. It's a, I called it a muscle phaser. It was a little tougher looking. My favorite phaser of all time is the original one on the original TV series. I wasn't as, I didn't like the ones in Motion Picture or Wrath of Khan that much. They looked just like a big number one phaser, the flat looking one. But yeah. this one I liked. It had a, it had a toughness to it, and. Uh, you know, they shoot a Klingon and he flies across the the oh yeah you know, uh, to terrain or whatever, and uh, and they're there and all of a sudden they're they're trying to figure out what to do. Of course, Kirk, you know, puts a puts his jacket over David and and everything, and then goes over and you can see the planet starting to trace. It gets very Wagnerian. It gets very uh, well. That's uh, something that Nimoy was wanting, wanted to do. That was something that he and Harv Bennett discussed early on when they were when they were uh, concocting the story and, and Nimoy was very straightforward in saying that he wanted it to be operatic. He wanted it to be big, yes. which is why, because he says, because the the emotions have got to, they've got to be big. They've got to be what we're talking about here on a larger yeah, what's scale. It, what's the, what's the heaven and hell thing. I'm trying to think of um, some of the, um, I said Wagnerian, but there's, you know, um, Gustave Doré illustrations from the Bible. I mean, everything is, I mean, it's Inferno. Yeah. 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 It gets, it gets Dante's Inferno. It gets to a point where, you know, trees are exploding out of the ground and, and stuff is flying Mm -hmm. all over the place. Mountains are collapsing. Well, the original plan was for there to be a good deal more of that. As a matter of fact, uh, as part of the, uh, the final fight between Kirk and Krug, uh, there was going to be a little bit more of that, but, uh, the, Certain things didn't work out, and they had uh, they had that fire on the set that caused them to lose a day or two. Um, oh, I didn't know about that. The oh, thing yeah, is, the, is state, that yeah, the movie 15, the movie it, had it, a finite yeah. budget. I mean, it's like it's like what you said in Star Trek Two, where Sulu was supposed to do all this stuff. 
you you cut that out, you save a million bucks. I'm not going to sit here and say that Shatner was wrong for trying to, because the budget was slashed for Rathacon from Star Trek, the emotion picture. Mm -hmm. And I've had my complaints about that before, some of the tackiness. But what I don't want to do is to do a subplot that's going to take more money away from the film that we actually ended up seeing and well, was as the good scene, as the it, scene with Sulu that was that was in the script for the second film. There were no special effects involved. It was just actors, <laughs> so it's not like that. Well, was, I mean, but wasn't you know, there? Wasn't there the? You didn't say there was the Excelsior wasn't in that film. No, no, no. There was. I mean, be, in the there was, was going to be there was going to be mention of it, but no. There oh, wasn't, there wasn't going to physically be there. No. Well, you know. Anyway. Um, well, no, well, I will say this: the to me visually, this fight, this whole thing, as the Genesis planet starts to come apart. The yeah. surface part of it is visually the weakest part of it, and I have to agree. I have to end up agreeing with uh, the film cinematographer uh, Charles. Uh, I think it's Charles Carell. He mm -hmm. he really pushed to try to get the Genesis Planet stuff shot on location in Hawaii, and that did not happen. And he thinks that the movie suffers for it. And I'll be honest, I think he's right. I I think he's right. I was watching it with Linda, like I said, about six months ago. And, uh, you know, she doesn't deal in subtleties the way you and I do. I mean, there's things that <laughs> you and I can watch a movie from the silent era and put on the 1920s goggles and see how great the special effects are. You and I can watch Metropolis and go, holy crap, the special effects are magnificent because we put ourselves into 1925. In this film, I still put myself into 1983. And I'm uh, when I watch it, I go that that's pretty good given I know the number of the budget and I know the year and yeah. what people were capable of on that budget at that time. Linda walks in and goes, boy, the special effects are kind of bad. <laughs> I'm like, <laughs> shut up. But uh, I mean, it's one of those where you, you, you know, I'm watching it again today and I've, I, I've never been that enamored with the actual destruction of the planet. Um, I've always felt that, it looked like about two or three notches above a Godzilla movie. Yeah. And I mean, it, 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 well, it, I will say that I think that the stuff shot where our point of view is from space as they're trying to escape in the, in the murder. And play, then that, that, that chunk looks good. Yeah. When the, when the chunk of, when the, when they're, they're getting away in the Klingon bird of play and that, that, those, that chunk of lava follows them. You know that, and it, it like fires off to the side, and then they and they keep going. That's good. And I'm not saying that these are terrible special effects, but it's it's a limitation of how much money they had for the film. If they had an extra five million bucks, we wouldn't be talking about this right now. But Star probably Trek not, was because, a, and we would probably have they probably would have shot the Genesis Planet stuff in Hawaii, and we would have a completely different feel. Yeah, it's a it's a budgeted film. It's like Wrath yeah. of Khan. You know, it's the Paramount people. They're not going to give Star Trek. You know, it was like you know, it's like after they did Star Trek Five, they got punished and they had to use the same costumes they used in Wrath of Khan or something like that for Star Trek Six. It's like holy crap! Somebody get the sewing department back in there to stitch some of these things up. Mm -hmm. It's it's but the thing I liked about this scene is that we got back to a good old Captain Kirk fist fight. The universe is going to yes. be destroyed, and it comes down to two guys rolling around in the. You know, there's no phasers, there's no photon torpedoes, there's no Genesis torpedo. It's two guys rolling around in the dirt punching each other, which Star Trek had so much of. 
uh, you know, in the original show, and like you know, Krug grabs Kirk's foot and throws him in the air, and he and he, and he flips, yeah. and uh, you know, uh, the part where Krug falls down that one ledge, and Kirk goes ah, like he's in a war cry and lands on him, and finally Krug is sitting there going like. He starts to fall off the cliff, and Kirk is trying to be decent, even though this son of a bitch is, at, you know, said, you know, ordered the death of his kid. And he goes to help him up, and the guy's still going to pull him off. And finally, Kirk takes that waffle-shaped shoe of his with that waffle pattern on the bottom, and just starts kicking him in the head, telling him how much crap he's sick and tired of with this guy, and kicks him into the lava pit. Um, it was it was good until. Christopher Lloyd goes to fall in the lava pit, and then it's a very stiff looking. I mean, it, it actually makes the scene at the beginning of Vertigo look very smooth by comparison, where the cop falls <laughs> yeah. to his death. Yeah, yeah. I th- and I think that, I'll be honest, I think that that effect in Vertigo does look better than the Krug effect. Very smooth, I, very beautiful. I, for for, for, for what, what year is that? Is Vertigo 1958? It's, it's pretty amazing. We're talking 58 as opposed to 80, 83. Yeah. They should have had, uh, you know, ILM. That's one of the things. Uh, well, it's difficult. I, and I'm going to bring up ILM a little bit. The degree of difficulty on the Krug fall is, uh, is more difficult, though, because the background he's falling into is moving. It's that, it's that rolling lava. So yeah. the degree of difficulty is higher than the static shot of the ground that the cop is falling toward in Vertigo. But... Yeah, that's only. I still think that's the that only sh- wiggle room I'm willing it, to give. It's it. the it's the it's the photography of the human being that was lacking. They needed to do the thing where the guy's sitting on something and the camera pulls away, whether it's a blue yeah, screen or yeah. whatever the hell it I is. I agree. I agree. Um, but um, uh, ILM. Uh, that's my problem. That's why I still there's things about Star Trek the motion picture I love so much, is that it was these. Um, uh, Douglas Trumbull kind of effects and 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 Dykstra doing the work that they were doing. Whereas with ILM, one like at the beginning of this film, the Enterprise, you know, the violins start playing where we see it after, you know, and it's like the Enterprise is coming home and all that kind of stuff. But it's lit up on all sides, that deep space look that is in the motion picture, and they also had this in Wrath of Khan, which I, I was a little bit not happy with is that it doesn't look like deep space anymore they're lighting it on all sides to make it easier to photograph you no, know i hadn't thought about that but yeah well i don't true. i don't it's it's a little bit more tv-ish and it's like that's fine but that well, was one of the things isn't that, that true isn't that true of these films past the first one past the first one and yeah, that's well yeah. well i even brought it up in our last episode when we yeah. de- when we talked about Wrath of Khan is that there is a sort of a television neeness to the special effects. I mean, uh, ILM won the bid or whatever it is and they did them, but it's sort of like nothing beats the photography of the of the the ships and stuff in that first film. I feel like I'm looking at Star Trek in deep space. Here I feel like I'm back to watching a television show. Um uh, you know, but having said that, and as we're talking about the uh, the uh, destruction scenes on the planet, there was a set, and then there was a bunch of miniatures. There was trees popping out of the ground with flame and all that, and they looked like miniatures. They were good miniatures, but they were almost reminiscent of like expensive 1930s miniatures. You know? Yeah, yeah, I uh, agree. I agree. Yeah. Um, so anyway, Kirk, Kirk 
finally kills Krug, and he uses a, a, a dirty trick to get back on the Klingon ship where everybody's been mean if there's only one Klingon left because the rest of them are dead. They got blown up on the Enterprise. And he goes, Choi Chu. And the guy doesn't realize it's not it's not Krug, it's Kirk. And he's there with the with his, uh, what do you call the, the, dis- the disruptor. He's got a Klingon disruptor in his hand. And they capture John Larroquette. And this and, actually is is uh, my favorite bit of humor in the entire. Film. Yes, it's it's pretty funny. It's yeah. it's it's almost a it's almost a a a, a switch on the movie Commando, mm-hmm. where again, but this oh, is Matrix. Be, you said he killed me last. But this I is but this is this is before Commando, and to me, this is the oh this is, okay. Yeah, this yeah. is the this is the good. Yeah, okay. This is the good guys version of of that idea. Well, Kirk. He's got to be holding his temper because these guys killed his son, and it's it's this thing. Well, I love where, that you can hear in his voice that part of the reason why he's not going to off the only Klingon on board is probably multiple reasons, but yeah. one of them is he's fucking tired now. <laughs> he just and, well, also too, wouldn't it be better if you had a witness to all this shit? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and so uh, um, and then later you've got uh, oh, what the hell's the name of that actor in the next film? Uh, the comedian who played in Holmes and Yo-Yo. I forget his name. He was the guy that uh, was the lawyer for the Klingons who said this was the uh, you know thing to exterminate the Klingon race. This weapon. Oh yeah. But the Genesis weapon. But um, yeah, Solera gets there and 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 uh, you know. Uh, you know what, what? How did the joke go? Is like I'll kill you later, you know, or something. Well, he's, and the, he, 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 it's something like I do, I do not deserve to live, and he goes, fine, "I do not deserve to live." Fine, I'll kill you later. And then he goes, "You said you would kill me." He goes, "I lied." And then they they take the guy in, and Larroquette was pretty good. He played it straight, and there was a the big husky guy that was the Klingon. He was pretty good. Those well, two guys don't. Yeah, Larroquette's always been a good actor, both in dramatic and comedic role. He's just yeah. somebody. He's very believable on screen, so not a shock that he'd be a good. He's cleaner. so funny though on Night Court, and I didn't even watch that much Night Court, but he was so funny on the episodes I watched. Mm-hmm. When I went back later, I'm like, it 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 doesn't stick to him in this film the way no. it does with. No, it Christopher Lloyd. For me, it was tougher to accept Christopher Lloyd than it was John Larroquette. Well, but, Lloyd, Lloyd was playing a much broader character in Taxi than Larroquette was playing on Night Court. Um, really? I don't know. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But 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 Larroquette's just playing a sleazy lawyer. He's not playing a crazy person. You know. He was funny. God damn, yeah. that guy was funny with some good jokes on that show. Mm-hmm. But uh, so you know, then they go, and this is uh, the 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 Klingon ship has now fled from the exploding Genesis planet where David's body still is. I mean, you got to think about how horrific that is. I mean, like God, uh, that you leave your son on a, on an exploding planet, and then they go to Vulcan. They meet up with Vulcan, and then they and Uhura, by the way, who was not did not go with them on the ship to the film. She meets them at Vulcan. Yeah, that and, was the, that was the plan. Is she got to Vulcan and set everything up for them to be able to do this as soon as they got Spock's body there. Right, and uh, they 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 show up, and now this is oddly enough uh, for you music lovers, that passage of music from them leaving Genesis to landing on Vulcan is some of the best music ever written for Star Trek. I mean, it's a variation off of Khan, but it, uh, you know, some stuff in the Khan film, but it is so beautiful. It's very, I recommend it. You ought to try it. It's like listening to actual classical music. 
and then they get there and there's this whole and this is a long scene That's a long but it, sequence. it well has done. to be but yeah. it has to be it this is not this is we're, not yeah a, because we're asking a lot of the audience even long time trek fans this is not something we've seen before it ties in effectively with vulcan mysticism but this really is something different this is resurrection we also need to do this too though let's go back to in a way what this really is and i hate to bring this up but it's true this is star trek the rewritten contract (laughs) <laughs> Leonard Nimoy, <laughs> Leonard Nimoy was had, they they coaxed him back by giving him a directing job. Mm-hmm. How would you like to direct Star Trek? Oh, you didn't offer it. It almost makes you wish back when Rathacon was being thought up before they killed him. What if we give you a directing job on the next one? There would never have been a death of Spock. This is literally them saying this is an actor who is is being given a great opportunity now that he didn't know that would have existed and saying, oh, okay, I will come back as Spock. And now they got to, okay, how do we get him back? Well, Harv Bennett was smart enough to write a fairly good story. Mm -hmm. I'll be honest with you. Out of all the crazy, kooky regenerations of superheroes and science fiction people and all that kind of stuff, this while not executed as well as some of the other films, the actual idea behind it is really damn good. I mean, Harv Bennett wrote a very well, it was, as it was going on, and you can sit here later and look, and, eh, there's there's holes here and holes there. But I remember when it was done, I think, man, this is one of the most brilliant ideas to bring a human being back to life. It's that smartly, I've ever, yeah, it's smartly played. Yeah. It's smartly played. I mean, Harv Bennett was smart. The only thing that makes me sad is it had to be done. We literally had to watch this film be made because it is a, oh, I've, I'm going to rewrite my contract and come back as a director now. So I will but, continue but let's, to let's play Let's talk Spock. about how well it works, though, because... No, main, it does. The main, it the does. Main th- the main theme of this film builds on something that was set up as everything was that that this film has was built on something set up in the, in, in the Wrath of Khan, which is the the main theme of friendship that you know what it this film takes it even further is what should a person do to help a friend what sure. sacrifice what obstacles are you willing to endure for a friend and of this course. movie shows that these people these seven people are more than willing to burn their careers to the ground if they think they can save him of course, of course, but it was a thing that was brought up in a film, Wrath of Khan, which they knew the guy was going to die by the end of the film. You see what I'm saying? In other yeah, words, but this let's, takes let's pretend- that, this takes it fur- this takes it further, and that is to me the core of a of a smart way to build the the story that where it reflects something already within the characters that we know. Oh yeah, I mean I I agree with that. I'm just saying that we're watching a film that literally is reversing something that happened. Oh, yeah. Not because because originally Spock was supposed to be dead. He died. Nicholas Meyer said, holy crap, what's this scene that they shot at the last moment with a torpedo on the surface of the planet? I didn't write that. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, they, it's one they of those did, Yeah, they, they did that because the, the, the test audiences were like, oh, man, shit. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it's 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 one of those things, but... 
um, this is one of those, hey, we're, you know, we're in court and we're, we're reversing the decision. Spock's alive. And so they, they, they bring him back in a film that is, it's got flaws. Mm-hmm. It, we can both agree it's flawed. It's got greatness in it. So that's, is it still a film worth watching? Fuck yeah. I've watched it many, 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 many times. But it's one of those things where it's like, what if somebody had just like six months earlier during Wrath of Khan before they really got to anywhere near a death scene said, you know, Leonard, if you want, why don't you just stick around, stay on the show, and we'll we'll give you a job as director on the next film. We might not have ever had a Spock death scene. Mm-hmm. You see what this I'm saying? True. This is true. I but mean, at the same time, it's very difficult for me to imagine Wrath of Khan having the punch that it has without that. So. Well, I mean, for like I said before in my on our last show, to me the greatest punch in the film is Kirk finding out he's got a kid who doesn't like him. That the Spock death, I already was waiting for that because that was paperwork. But in this film, they figured out a way to bring him back. And Harv Bennett, who was what he did the the Bionic people, and he did um, the Hulk. Was that what he was known for at that time? I think yeah, primarily yeah. But that's but but there's a guy that's making those shows, and I I like those shows. Yeah, uh, I did too. I, I as was a matter of fact, my si- I, I worshipped the Six Million Dollar Man when I was a kid. My my sister just sent me a picture this weekend of Lindsay Wagner with my uh, magazine cover I did of her, and they gave her a copy of my magazine. I was like, oh, I wish I'd been there. But I I like that stuff, and and the Hulk was good for a television show at that time. It was pretty good stuff. Mm-hmm. And but 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 to have Har Bennett be doing that. And then turn around and show his creative chops in things like Wrath of Khan and 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 bringing Spock back in a very intelligent way. That guy was bigger and better than the world got to see, ultimately. What other things did that guy have in him? Uh, because these Star Trek films, other than five, uh, were really were really damn good stuff. Oh, that I agree. He, you know, and so I, uh, I, it's like, yeah, you were doing the Bionics and you were doing the Hulk, but look what you did with these films that that are are you know in the in in sci-fi classic land, you know, pretty good stuff. Well, and I, and, and and one of the sad things is he had a really great idea uh, after Star Trek Five. He developed an idea for uh, another film that would have been a very different approach. He he had this idea called the Academy Years which would have mm-hmm. focused on uh, the characters of Kirk and Spock when they were much younger at Starfleet Academy that would have been then allowed you know them to like bring other characters in and develop all this different stuff from uh-huh. like you know 25 years before these movies 25 or 30 years before these movies and to me that's that that shows the kind of thinking that he had which is hey okay if Star Trek is going to be these characters there are other ways to play with these characters. We can broaden this world out, but you know that that didn't happen. I mean, luckily we we uh, we did uh, get the, the the undiscovered country, but at the same time, that just shows you that you know once things are once things are firing on all thrusters, you get these ideas that start getting thrown out there. You know, eventually there were comic books done of Starfleet yeah. Academy, but man, the idea that there was there, a little bit of that in the. Uh in the first J.J. Uh, Abrams uh, Star yeah. Trek film where yeah. they were young, where they were young and, and getting into into Starfleet. But yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, it's one of those things where where this film, I, I love the fact that we're, it's sort of like, I think you and I have talked about this before. It's like arguing about 
the top tier James Bond films, the top 20 films and going, you do realize we're, we're arguing about a bunch of great films and trying to jockey them for position. And that's what I think that's nice about this movie. It might be the lowest man on the totem pole of the very good uh, Star Trek films, but it's still a good Star Trek film. Oh, I agree. I agree. I, I, I have a lot of love for this film, uh, even though I have mixed feelings about one aspect of it that we haven't talked about yet. And I want to bring this up. What's that? Um, well, this is the movie that uh, that introduced uh, an actual worked out Klingon language that we are now still dealing with decades later. <laughs> that what? Uh, the Klingon language. We we, we, we suddenly needed uh, a, an entire Klingon language. And now, for years, I've had to suffer through people walking around talking in Klingon at conventions and driving me insane. Uh, I don't know if I can really forgive it for that. Well, you know, the thing is, my dogs, I've got uh, two, two sister dogs from the same litter, which was like considered the biggest mistake because they will fight for, they jockey for position as to who is next in the pecking order of the pack. Mm -hmm. Now, I would probably say, even though I hate to admit it, Linda is probably the top dog in the pack. I am probably second unless I'm angry, right? <laughs> Dad's pissed and all that kind of stuff. But then the two dogs are sitting here going like, okay, Kiba thinks that she's top dog in Kaiju. Until Kaiju gets really pissed and then they'll fight. We made a big mistake getting sister dogs from the same litter we did not know that that was a no-no nobody told us we brought them home and then all of a sudden we started noticing this as they got older but daddy can get mad they'll be like you knock it off or i'll grab them by their collars or whatever it is but one of the things i do is when they're really starting to fight and i'm really sick of it is i run in there and i start yelling at them and cling on you know that kind of thing. Oh my God. You know they start. Yeah, not not really. It's just a little bit of the crap I heard in this film, like joy well, no, but, but but it it, it it does sound like you know someone. It's very know, it's very gargling. It sounds like somebody gargling sideways. So yeah, yeah, it's it's sort of like it's sort of like you know there's the there's the romance languages. There's Italian and Spanish and Greek French. and all that, and then and French and then there's German is not a romance language. It's you know no. a lot of K's and X's and all that other kind of stuff. And Klingon is like that. You can sit there and start yelling at the dogs with all this, you know, and then the dog, oh crap, Dad's pissed. So in that in that way, I'm grateful for Klingon. But yeah, I know anybody that sits there and learns that stuff, it's like. And uh, does that go on your resume or what? You know. Well, yeah, it, it suddenly becomes this question: is like, so you could have chosen French or Italian, <laughs> Japanese, or Japanese, what do you need maybe? down here in the in my part of the country? It's very good to learn Spanish. It's very good yeah, to learn. Yeah, you, you know, could have chosen that, but you you channeled usable. your desires to learn a different language into something that only about 500 people on the entire planet will ever give a shit about. Good job. For sure. For sure. Yeah. I mean, it's, um, uh, you know, so ultimately, okay. So did we get to the end? Okay. At the end, oh, yeah, they, they, they take uh Spock's, uh, they take McCoy and they put him down on the table. They put Spock's, uh, body, empty headed body down there. And they, and the, Dame Judith Anderson reunites the two. And she re reunites the two with a, a souped up version of the, uh, uh, Vulcan mind meld. 
and uh, it takes a long time. There's a lot of fades and this ethereal music and and lanterns and smoke. And I and love stuff. the I love the look of this whole section. This is this is a beauty. I just love the color the color scheme with the the, the Vulcan sky and the. I think it was this movie's way of getting somebody who was like. Um, a movie's version of what was who was the woman who played Tapau? Um, oh uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, that was Tarn. yes, yes. The, I know what you're talking about, though. Yeah, she was a dame too, wasn't she? Yeah, eventually, yes. Yeah, and and uh, it was one of those, you know, especially when she's like looking at Kurt and like, this is a fight to the death, and they 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 zoom in on Shatner's face where he's shitting his pants, you know. Like, oh hell, uh, this dude can re- this dude can kill me. I know he can. Oh, kill this me. Is, I'm I'm gonna die, but uh, I got a horny Vulcan with a with a Lerpa, but um, yeah, I mean, so you know, they they do that, and then when I I love the image of when Spock is there and he gets up and it's like who we know we don't know how long this is gonna take to try to get him anywhere near normal. And they start walking with him, and he pulls that cowl down, and he's got the ears and everything, and it's Leonard Nimoy, but he's got his hair slightly longer, like they missed him by like a couple of months mm. as to where he was the last time, and he starts talking, you know, and starts talking. I love that scene. I love the way he looks. I almost wish in some ways they hadn't gotten rid of that hair. I think he <laughs> looks so cool in that scene and then they let you well, know it's similar that, to that, how he looked at the very beginning his first scenes in the first film uh that kind of longer shaggier hairdo yeah, yeah but i think it was actually better done in this in this one though in that one it was a little it was almost crazy <laughs> like hey spock <laughs> maybe you need to take a bath but in this one it just something was so cool about it and then you realize now I'm there's thinking the, about Vulcan body odor. Oh no. <laughs> That's not yeah. Good. Sulfur. They smell like sulfur, but, <laughs> um, there, there he's there and he's, he's, um, you know, you realize it's the very beginnings of saying, Hey, things are going to be okay. Things are going to be all right. And they, they don't let you go because in the next film, which we're going to start do soon, he still isn't all there completely, and they use it to their advantage in the movie. It's it's yeah. pretty it's pretty good. I'm actually impressed they kept that going. But um, like I said, for some reason, I went back and saw this movie over and over again. Uh, it wasn't better than some of the other ones I'd ever seen, but for some reason, it was me and another buddy that really liked. Uh, we were we you know Rathacon was so great, and we were hoping for more good Star Trek in the future, and we kept going back to see this thing. And uh, I think maybe the first couple of times I was a little bit like, I don't know what to make of all of this, and I had to keep watching it. There are bits of this that I um, go, yeah, that could have been done better. And other parts I go, it couldn't have been done better. You yeah, know, it's yeah. it's weird. Where It's, a, it's even, a weird mix. I agree. Yeah. Well, it's a weird mix, but it's almost like when it's good, it's really good. Mm-hmm. And when it's bad, it's like, eh, it's bad. But it's it's like the good parts or the parts that are so necessary to the history of Star Trek are so blatant in this movie. There's stuff in this film that's too important. Spock being resurrected. I mean, like in Star Trek Six, In Star Trek Six, he's standing there, and they what do they make a reference to Star Trek Three? Well, oh, and Scotty goes, ah, we're dead. And Spock goes, I've been dead before. I yep. mean, stuff like that, it's still part of it. It's still part. The Enterprise is no longer that first Enterprise in these later films. It is a new version mm-hmm. that they had to get because that one got blown to hell. That was amazing. 
it's still one of the great great special effects in movies as far as I'm concerned. One of the great setups. It's one it's one of the great ship destruction sequences ever put on film, I think. It's it's well, really astonishing. I'm like I'm like you know, Neil deGrasse Tyson says it's his favorite ship. I think it's my favorite spaceship, period. Mm-hmm. Uh, st- mm-hmm. Nothing in Star Wars comes close. It, to me, there are three ships. There is the rocket, there is the flying saucer, and then we get into the weird stuff, and that is the Enterprise. What I remember the first time I saw that thing in 1967, 68, I was like, what in the hell is that? What in the hell is that? You, you you weren't there, but it was so weird to see this thing that made no sense. <laughs> it it didn't have rockets. It was weird. It would look like uh, it just was bizarre. It was this bizarre looking thing, and now they there's been a billion different ships since then, but that thing is still the most unique looking spaceship and and gets my vote as the coolest spaceship of all time in in any of its iterations mostly uh the original television show one and then the motion pictures and stuff like that it is it is the coolest spaceship i would agree with you i think it's a, i think it's an amazing design and it's it's iconic nature i don't think will ever be overcome i think that that's clear simply because i mean we're still we 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 still see it on television and we're well into the you know the 2020s at this point so that yeah. that there's something about that design there's something about that sleek beautiful design that um, yeah. it's 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 going to i think it's going to be eternal no matter what no matter what else that's going to be something that sticks around forever i agree i agree it never looks old it never looks old well, so, Mr. Maddox, yeah. uh, any final thoughts on Star Trek Three: The Search for Spock? Um, yeah, I think I pretty much said everything I have to say. I'm, I'm cool. trying to think if there's anything else. Uh, uh, the James Horner soundtrack's great. I, I did get the uh, what was it? The two disc version that came out a few years ago, and uh, it does have the disco version of the Star Trek theme, Search for Spock, which is. <laughs> Almost as good as the Close Encounters disco theme by John Williams back when that came out. So, oh uh, yeah, I know. Uh, but that, there's good that music. May, that on. may be that may have to uh, end the podcast now that you've brought it up. Uh, yeah, really, yeah. it's 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 this is a movie that is necessary. Is it perfect? No. Is it good? That is a debate. I think it is. Oh, I think it falls I, onto. I think it easily falls into the good category. Yeah. No. Well, I'm saying. I, I, I mean, I, I, I'm trying to speak for everybody all at the same time. Yeah, yeah. For me, it's a good movie. Yeah. But, but the thing is, is it a necessary movie? Yes. Is there moments in it that, I, if you told me, oh, you could redo it and get rid of all this, it's like, no. Then you're going to get rid of that scene and that scene and that. Scene. I don't want those not to exist. There's greatness in this film. Well, and that's so, the thing. I think you may be hitting on this without say, stating it outright, but to get rid of the things that are clunky or cringy or not as good as you wish, you would almost necessarily have to do away with some of the best aspects of it as well, and that's just not something I'm willing. That would to be do. a crime. That yeah. would be a crime. Yeah, yeah. It's a good, it's a good movie. I I love the fact that it's uh, that our 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 discussion on this is dealing with the best of the. Of Star Trek films, you know, it's like with the Bond movie that no, it's not the best James Bond movie, but it's a Bond movie that I love. You yeah, know, that exactly. kind of thing. So, and that, and that and this film definitely falls into that kind of category. You're right. You're sure. right to point that out. Sure. Cool. 
Huh. Well, I think I've uh, I think I've this been nice to you. This is sad because our I think friends I've, are I think I've be been like, nice to you long enough now. So yeah, uh, I mean, it's like weird. We actually were nice to each other the last. I mean, I guess I think the last film we were okay with each other. Oh, these Star Trek films aren't good for our reputation. <laughs> By the end of this year, our reps will be in the toilet. That's not oh, good. Yeah. Those two are going to get married. You can tell. They love each other. It's like moonlighting. <laughs> it's true. But, uh, if they ever, if they ever hook up, the podcast yeah, but, will end. Yeah, it's it. Yeah, the thing is, the next film's going to be even more of a love fest. And then, oh, I know, but, I know. But but look, everybody's waiting for. Star Trek Five. I know. There's. Yeah, they were. I, I have no doubt. But Mark, yeah. I just want to thank you once again for coming on and talking it, about Star Trek movies with me. Um, th- this this was a good idea. I'm glad you came up with it. And the fact that I'm willing to praise you publicly about having an idea about a podcast is a uh, is 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 obviously high praise. It's something <gasps> you're not normally willing to do. So okay. good job, the lo- Mark. The lobotomy took. Um, yeah, we'll we'll have to. Uh, but I like that idea too, though, about doing the '70s disaster films. That'll be fun. That'd be fun. That really. Oh, would. we could do. I mean, Poseidon Adventures, fine. Uh, Towering Inferno is going to get. Pre- and then we'll do Earthquake. So anyway. <laughs> well, anyway. I, was about, I was about to say I, we, we we might even want to do Meteor because uh, I have some <laughs> affection for it, even though it's a turd. I have I have affection for it, but there is so much. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. I, yeah, yeah, yes. We have uh, to do meteor. We have a lot to, to talk about. There's a lot, but yeah, yes. I've got jokes. Okay, okay, okay. Mark, close the jokes down. <laughs> okay, shut it down. Close for the now. jokes down. Shut up, Mark. Shut up, uh, Martin Landau. Before he became good again. <laughs> shut up, Mark. Shut up. So anyway. Okay, so Mark, once again, thank you for coming on the show. Is there anything? You. Is there anything you've got coming out anytime soon that you want to alert the press to? Uh, there's a Ghost Agents thing I just finished for Rocco Jerome and his comic books. Cool. Uh, I've got a um, a new movie poster for a Joshua Kennedy uh, movie. And then I am doing another action-adventure book cover for The Red Menace. And then I am cool. doing a, and I won't say what the subject is because Daryl will kill me, but I am doing a new cover for Scream Magazine, uh, something that you'll appreciate being the film, the cineast that you are. All right. And uh, that's the immediate stuff. And then there's more stuff after that. So I'm busy. Busy, 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 busy. All right, man. Once again, uh, thank you very much for coming on and doing this. Well, thanks for having me, buddy. We will talk soon. Okay. All right. You take care. Cool. Bye-bye. Bye.